Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello and welcome to the game, World Cup Daily from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and thank you for joining us. We are here every match day of the World Cup, podcasting after 10 o'clock UK time every night. Two of the four quarterfinals are now set in stone. France face Uruguay on Friday and Russia, yes Russia, take on Croatia on Saturday. In the studio with me, the man with the facts and figures, it's Bill Edgar. And in St. Petersburg from the Sunday Times, Mr. Jonathan Northcroft. Later on, we'll be speaking to Matt Dickinson as we react to that Croatian shootout win over Denmark. We are 48 hours away from England versus Colombia, so we'll have an update from the England camp as that half of the draw appears to open up. And that's because the hosts have shocked the world. Russia have knocked out the former world champion Spain on penalties in Moscow as it finished one all after extra time. The Russian skipper, Igor Akinfeyev, with two saves in the shootout, a man who's been capped over 100 times by Russia, and Jonathan, almost certainly the best day of his international career. Yes, it was. Um, I mean, Akinfeyev had a funny career. You know, he, he was he was hugely rated as a youngster, thought that he was going to be one of the very best goalkeepers in the world. Probably didn't quite develop. Um, but then in his, in, in his sort of Russian career, he's been extremely well-respected at home, but maybe not, not so well-respected abroad, partly because he's got this odd Champions League record where maybe Bill knows the stat, but I think, he's, I think he's conceded a goal in every Champions League game he's played or something like that. It goes back to 40-odd games. So, He's got this kind of mixed reputation, but I mean, he, he, he was he was excellent in that shootout and 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 and, and very good throughout the match. And um, I guess one of the one of the stories of it was that Russian rear guard plus the goalkeeper, which is a very experienced part of that team. Um, you know, probably seeing them through in a really really difficult mission. Uh, by contrast, David Ahea faced five penalties, including one in normal time. Didn't save any, Bill. But the Manchester United keeper just hasn't really had the best tournament, has he? No, it's such a contrast with the Premier League season just gone. Uh, he'd, I think he'd only saved one of six uh, shots on target in the tournament before today. So, in other words, five had gone past him. And then, of course, all five in the shootout. And arguably two or three might have got to. They weren't all uh, smashed into the top corner by the the Russian penalty takers either. So um, his reputation certainly taken uh, quite a hit. Well, Spain scored after 12 minutes thanks to an own goal. They were in total control in that first half, dominating possession. So, Jonathan, how did Russia come back into the game? Uh, well, uh, I mean, I think there's two parts to it, really. Spain settled into this 
um, sort of very, I think, complacent, old-fashioned Spanish mode. You know, the, the bad old days before they they started converting their talent into international success. You know, I remember the the teams of you know '98 and 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 then with that era when actually Hero was a player himself. They always dominated games and they they were very very toothless and 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 that, that that's how they became. You know, they were they were knocking the ball forever sideways. There was no tempo to what they did. There was no bravery in their passing. They just seemed to to be content, you know. I think with an expectation that they could just see the game out from from one nil, and they were always going to have to do something really stupid to concede a goal. But but they did do something really stupid when when PK gave away that penalty, and and you know, then they just didn't they didn't react as if anything had changed. They 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 continued playing as if they thought the score was still one nil, and they were still seeing out the game, and it was. It was a real mental failure as much as anything else for Spain. And as I say, something that, that reminded me about the, the, the bad old days of Spanish football. Obviously, you've spoken there about how they played. What about the service to Diego Costa, which was probably non-existent? Uh, and then Costa himself was then replaced by Iago Aspas with 10 minutes of normal time to go. Aspas, of course, missing that decisive penalty in the shootout. Were you surprised by the substitution? I was. I mean, Costa had no service whatsoever, so I don't see how you could judge his performance. And actually, I don't see what was going to change by bringing on a different striker because the the, the whole problem was what was happening behind them. And and, and of course, you would say that that Costa's, Costa's got, you know, the the, the personality and uh, drive that you're going to need um, at, at the end of a game and an extra time. So, I, what surprised me was was why they kept in a game where the opposition did no attacking whatsoever that they felt they still needed to have Busquets and Koke on the pitch, you know, two sort of defensive-minded midfielders. It was absurd because there was nothing to defend in midfield. And when they've got talent like Thiago or Saul Neguez and, and they could have, you know, brought them on and maybe try to change the, the tempo of the game or what was happening in midfield, you know, it didn't happen. But we've got to remember that Hierro has just come from the Spanish second division, um, hasn't managed at this level, even remotely this level, before and, and and he was he was probably he was probably found out as well. Yeah, I mean a few eyebrows were raised by some of uh, Hierro's decisions. Another one perhaps was that he dropped Andres Iniesta. Bill, it's only the second time he hasn't started for Spain in the last nine tournaments. Uh, he, I mean, even Iniesta couldn't have expected that. Yeah, it was a big surprise. I mean, he's, it, okay, he's not necessarily the the best Spain player by a long way. I think Isco has been a perhaps a better creative midfielder in this tournament and escaped did his best today uh, but but I, I agree with Jonathan they Spain have favored a 4141 system really this tournament just the one defensive midfielder so they went in with two today and uh, okay maybe be cautious initially because you're up against the host perhaps they're really going for it the host but Russia just played five at the back they, they were doing nothing so so at half time at the very latest just take uh, Koke off or Busquets either of them off and just get further up because um, it, it was a case of Russia having more defence than normal uh, Spain holding back a lot more and it, it's no good it, you know holding off saying well we, we've got a, a draw you know at least we've got something but when you get to penalty shootout it's it's 50-50 and if you've got far superior players you need to be uh, acting as if you're losing basically in terms of substitutions and throw everything 
caution to the wind to, to get the win that your talent uh, merits. Well, Iniesta, as we know, is leaving Barcelona and he has now announced his retirement from international football. So we do say goodbye uh, to one of the greats, Jonathan, a man whose legendary status is secured as the only Spaniard to score a World Cup winning goal. Yeah, that's right. I, I was there that night in um, uh, Soccer City. Uh, it was a magical moment and, and uh, you know, moments that a career like Iniesta's um, richly deserved. I thought even today he was still the best of them. You know, he he was the one that had a you know exactly what Bill's talking about the the, the sense of the, the 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 danger that they were in in the game. He was the one that came on and knew that they needed to change the tempo and up up things. And he was trying to play one twos and get into the box and play it forward. You know, he he he, he was still the number one player in many senses today. And it's it, it's very very sad to see him. Go. Um, it does feel like this World Cup seeing a bit of a changing of the guard, just generally um, with all the players going. And um, I guess, I guess Iniesta's part of that. You know, we'll 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 miss him. We'll miss him greatly. Well, Spain are ranked 10th in the world, Russia 70th. FIFA rankings can be misleading, Bill, but it certainly says something about the gap between these two sides. Yeah, it does. I mean, if Russia have done well to get to the quarterfinals, I, you know, they've had home advantage. That the the crowd has been incredibly noisy. I guess that's helped a bit. They had a a very easy draw, really. Obviously, to be seeds to start with, when when you're as weak as Russia, is a huge bonus. But then to have Saudi Arabia and Egypt as two of your group opponents, that's also a real helping hand towards the group stage. Then once it gets to the uh, knockout rounds, I mean, they clung on. I guess Spain probably had slightly more uh, more openings today, and you might have uh, won on another day, Spain. But uh, once it's a knockout, you've always got a chance. And of course, they're in the quarters now, and um, there's, you know, not. Uh, too much in the way at the moment. No, absolutely. They've never been in the last 16 before. As you say, they're now into the last eight. Uh, two wins they are now from the final, Jonathan. And, and and Bill's already sort of alluded to to the home support, but what do we put this down to? Is it more than just the home fans steering them on? Um, well, there's, there's maybe some slightly tricky territory here. But, I mean, they're certainly um, you know running faster and, and competing better than we, we, we thought they would. Uh, you know, let's hope Let's hope that it's a nice football story. Um, I, I think there's a, may, may, you know, may, maybe if you're talking about the fans, I think there's an element that the expectations were just so low, and the and the Russian team was was so sort of denigrated before. And and I have, you know, since being in Russia, I've, you know, got a little bit of a flavour of the local character, and they're very humorous people, and uh, and and sort of in that kind of sardonic humour, and, and there was real, you know jokes about the Russian team before the finals, how ridiculous they were. So because they had such low expectations and then had that opening game against Saudi Arabia, that that did inject the whole sort of scene with, with this real momentum. You know, they were so relieved to, 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 to do that. But I think they have been able to, to then kind of ride a bit of a, a wave. And I'm in St. Petersburg tonight. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it's going mad. I mean, it's a big city. It's a bit like London and you know, it's, you know, it's probably too big to be completely taken over by World Cup fever. But you know, there are people beeping their horns and and uh, you know, singing singing the anthem and and and, and in, you know, sort of Russian hats and stuff like that when it's all time. And there's, there is a there is a sort of surprise and, and and a bit of joy on their on on their faces. And and it does add a dimension to to a tournament when when the hosts do well, of course. And 
you know, it just keeps it boiling into the, the final stages. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Game. World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. You can hear live commentary of both of Monday's games from the round of 16 on Talk Sport. It starts with Brazil taking on Mexico at 3 o'clock. Then the clash between Belgium and Japan is live at 7 on Talk Sport. We are getting closer to seeing England in the knockout stages with the game against Colombia on Tuesday night. Matt Dickinson joins us now. And Matt, Gareth Southgate has been having his say today about Jordan Pickford and the suggestion by some, including Belgium's Thibaut Courtois, that Pickford's too short. Yeah, well, it's actually not. I mean, it's not the first time I've, you know, we've heard that debate around him. I mean, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's not, he's not short by um, regular um, sort of guy standards, but he is, well, certainly compared to Courtois and, and Bill is the absolute um, genius at stats. I don't know if he can conjure an average height for um, top flight goalkeepers. I think it's about six foot four now, maybe six four and a half. That that's really the standard height. You go back say 40 years and it would be around six foot so it's I remember looking into it some time ago I think it's about four inches it's gone up over 40 years so it's quite a bit given the given that if a keeper dives from the center of the goal towards a post I mean there's only a small amount of space to fit the ball through when you've got four inches taken away from that if it carries on at this rate over the next 50 years you need to start thinking about widening the goal but uh, but yes Pickford is six one, so he is uh, short for um, a, a modern-day goalkeeper. Um, but of course, well, while uh, it can be criticised for that, there's not much he can do about it. Although Peter Shilton did famously try and uh, extend himself by, uh, by stretching, I think, hanging off the banisters to try and stretch his arms to give himself a bit more of reach in his day. I think he was only six foot uh, naught, which, of course, was normal in those days. And then just looking further back in the 1950s, Bert Williams was the regular England keeper then and he was only five foot nine so now if somebody was five foot nine it would be laughable the whole crowd would you know erupt in uh, hysterics <laughs> saw a keeper that size. Well Southgate actually had a unique way of describing that most goalkeepers are the same height he actually said there's a Cadbury's cream egg between them I've never heard of anything like that before Bill Matt have you heard of a similar comparison? It is a, a strange one to to use uh, nowadays. You'd thought it'd be more like a piece of penne or a stick of broccoli or something because he wouldn't <laughs> want to give his players a, 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 that sort of idea. But yes, is a cream egg, I don't know, is it an inch or an inch and a half or something? It's, it's a strange comparison. But there are significant differences, of course, between keepers, 6'1 to 6'5. As I say, it does does make a difference. So, so I suppose Gareth Southgate is trying to make light of it and push the issue away. We should say that other confectionery treats are available. But uh, Southgate also did say that Pickford is an important fit for the way England want to play. Uh, Matt, you'd assume he's talking about his distribution with the ball at his feet? Yeah, no, that's definitely been one of the things that got, got him selected. Um, I think he's, he has looked at the part and looked um, the right fit. He wants, 
you know, there is the modern obsession. It's Pep Guardiola obviously has taken it to possibly to the ex- ex- extreme, but, um, you know, the, the, especially if you're one of those teams that wants to play out of the back, um, you, you want to have a keeper who distributes well, is comfortable taking, you know, a lot of back passes and redistributing it around, around the back three that he's got. So, you know, on that side of it, I think, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why Pickford has just been favoured over, um, over Butland. Is there any question mark then over Pickford, do you think, being in the England team or being in the starting eleven? I don't think so. No, I mean, I don't think um, uh, there were obviously moments against Belgium B when he looked um, uncomfortable. There was that ball that sort of got sort of squirmed through his legs early on from with Batshuayi sort of sticking a foot in and Cahill um, scraped it off the line. He, you know, there were there were a few moments in that. Uh, you know, I, I actually thought for the goal itself, Danny Rose was 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 more culpable. You know, he gets he sort of buys that dun- dummy from Yanazai too too easily and and. You know, Yanazai's got time to pick and choose a spot. Um, but no, I think, I mean, looking at the team, given what we saw against um, the Belgian reserves, I, I, I think there's a feeling that the team probably picks itself, that, you know, that, that, that there'll be Pickford surviving, Stone surviving, and then nine others will um, come riding back um, into the side. And I, I don't think anyone or many people could could dispute that on the form that we've seen over those first three games. Mm. And Matt, you've written for the Times today about the history between England and Colombia. Uh, they last faced each other at the World Cup 20 years ago, but as you write, it's a story that begins with Bobby Moore and a bracelet. Yeah, well, they've, they've played each other five times. Um, the first time was that uh, friendly before um, they went to the Mexico World Cup and it must have seemed like a good idea at the time, you know, go to Bogota, get some altitude training, get a run out. And, um, you know, on the pitch, it went very well, 4-0, which is the, the one comprehensive victory we've, we've, we've had over um, Colombia. The rest have been pretty close. But um, that was where, before the game, um, Bobby Moore gets accused of stealing a bracelet. I mean, it's one of those extraordinary stories. You try and put it in the modern context where, you know, Harry Kane's hanging around the hotel lobby and next thing you know, he's being accused of, of, of stealing jewellery. He ends up... Um, being detained, he ends up under house arrest. Um, he ends up sort of turning. Yeah, you know, the rest of the team fly off to the the World Cup while he's under house arrest, and then he ends up having to turn up. You know, a couple, two or three days before the first match, and it, it was a story that made front page global news. Um, uh, and and you know, it well the countries didn't play each other for a, another couple of decades after that, and uh, diplomatic relations were were strained. This went up to the top that you know, the Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, was in trying to intervene on Bobby Moore's behalf to get him freed for the World Cup. So it, as you know, we, we sort of talk about a, a pre-World Cup scandal being whether Steve Holland is walking around with a few, few names on a team sheet. Uh, I, I think compared, compared to um, the England World Cup winning captain being arrested and under house arrest, we, we've, we've got some, go, you know, we've got some catching up to do. Bill, you've unearthed a stat that tells us Kieran Trippier might be due a goal on Tuesday. Yeah, well, I hope so. Uh, just running through the 
the uh, shirt numbers who've scored goals at this World Cup. There's only two uh, numbers which have yet to produce a goal. Number one, obviously, goalkeeper. And uh, number 12 is the other one, which they can partly be excused by the fact that uh, half of them are goalkeepers, but still plenty of number 12 uh, who are outfielders who could uh, score, one of whom is Kieran Trippier. He's been... uh, setting up uh, chance after chance for his teammates, but uh, maybe he can actually uh, get on the end of something created by somebody else. And he can be, if, if he does, then he'd be the first number 12 to score at this World Cup. <laughs> you have gone through it all and found out no number 12 has yet scored at this World Cup. Brilliant, Bill. We've talked a lot in many of our podcasts about the Gareth Southgate effect on this England team. And it's fair to say it's gone even further than that. Waistcoat sales, that's right, waistcoat sales are on the up with Southgate suggested as the reason for that in the UK. Uh, He's always well turned out and he's now, Matt, inspiring a fashionable nation. He is. I have to say, as someone who's never, ever worn a waistcoat, actually, I say that, that I I guess this morning, dressed some size, you know, you had to possibly be squeeze myself into it for some um, formal function but I, I I've never got it I mean I, I have to say I, I'm not I'm not casting judgment on Gareth's um, you know uh, fashion sense I'm sure he's far snappier dressed than I am but I the waistcoat thing I've just never I've, I've never got um, and that maybe that's 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 my mistake not his the game World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. We'll be giving you a Times trivia teaser question every day on every podcast as provided by Times statistician Bill Edgar, who is sat opposite me today. And last time out, we asked you, the 2002 World Cup was held in two countries. Which country staged the opening game and which country hosted the final? Come on then, Bill, let us know. Okay, the opening game was France v Senegal, and that was in South Korea. And South Korea were co-hosting the event with Japan, and the Japanese staged the final where Brazil beat Germany 2-0. You've gone easy on our listeners there, Bill. That was a little bit of an easy one, I think. But you've gone for a tougher teaser today. This is the question. Aside from Wembley and Old Trafford, which is the only stadium used in the Premier League last season that was also a venue for the 1966 World Cup? Hmm. Tune in to our next podcast to find out the answer. So it is Croatia who will play Russia in the quarterfinals of this World Cup after a penalty shootout win over Denmark following a one-all draw after extra time. Uh, both sides got onto the score sheet within the first four minutes, but after that there wasn't much to write home about in the rest of the 90 minutes. Uh, into extra time they went then and there was incredible drama right at the end with about five minutes to go when Croatia were awarded a penalty. Uh, Matthias Jorgensen uh, taking out Antti Ribic who was uh, through on goal and, and Matt, that sort of turned out to be a great decision as Kasper Schmeichel saved Luka Modric's penalty. Um, well, it was it was, it, it was a sort of right decision, although it, it didn't feel like justice was done. I mean, ultimately there was a chance for someone to roll the ball into an empty net. I, I understand the double jeopardy rule, you know, this rule that basically you don't get sent off if if uh, you've made an attempt to play the ball, which sort of he had, but you know, it, it just felt like. Croatia had, you know, I mean, they had a gaping net, a guy ready to roll the ball in, um, and, and he gets felled. I know a penalty is um, gives a player of the class of Luka Modric the chance to um, claim justice, but uh, Kasper Schmeichel did that amazing save. And uh, yes, then onto the shootout we went, and Camp Nee is someone who was delighted that Modric scored in it. 
Yeah, I mean, it was an eventful penalty shootout, wasn't it? Uh, Schmeichel uh, being involved in that, of course, uh, saving two in the shootout. Uh, but, I mean, it was just drama and drama in that penalty shootout, wasn't it, Bill? And I mean, I couldn't even watch it and I don't have anything to do with these teams. I wasn't emotionally involved at all. Yeah, it was getting ridiculous. I mean, the the last penalty in the Spain-Russia match was missed by uh, Aspas. Then uh, you had uh, Schmeichel saving um, from Modric in extra time and then onto the shootout and each team missed their first kick as well. So it was four in a row today at the World Cup, which failed. And then even uh, Schoener and Piveric missing again uh, for each, uh, each team's fourth kick and then Nikolai Jorgensen missing uh, again and then uh, allowing Rakitic to get the winner. So yes, it was a it was a dramatic finish um, and it kind of it made up for the, the game, which was pretty uh, stale. I mean, it's oft, often you get uh, knockout matches at the World Cup where you just feel the teams are waiting for penalties and you, you're surprised that you know, Croatia have got a, probably more... Uh, class about them you thought they'd go for it a bit more but there's just a kind of a torpor hanging over the game you think this is just you know inevitably waiting for the shootout mm. uh, I mean Matt Croatia for some were, were dark horses for this tournament particularly with that talented midfield that they have uh, what did you make of their performance today well yeah I think I think they, they must have more to come than they showed um, tonight I, I mean I think they they are the stronger team than Denmark. Certainly, they've got the potential to, to, to go further in this tournament than I think Denmark would have done. And I think, obviously, that this half of the draw now is, is looking absolutely wide open. I mean, I think in world rank, I know the rankings are flawed. I think Switzerland are probably the, the top-ranked team in that half of the draw. Um, you know, if I was a Croatian tonight, I'd be looking at it thinking, you know, you know they, they obviously got close in 98, and this is their chance to go one further. I mean, in, you know, in the other half, obviously, we've got um, Bel- Belgium, Brazil as a potential um, game. You've got France um, on the march there. And on the other half, we've got, um, well, as we know, Sweden and Switzerland, England, Colombia, Croatia and Russia. And, and that's, that, <laughs> that feels a pretty lopsided uh, draw in all sorts of ways. It certainly does. Um, but obviously, as England fans, we're loving the opportunity and the possibility uh, of going all the way through this uh, tournament. And of course, if England make it through the next two rounds, we know that the winner of Russia versus Croatia is waiting in that semi-final. I mean, there's a huge carrot dangling, isn't there, for uh, England and Kara Southgate? There is. I mean, it's. I guess we, sh- you know, this is where, <laughs> you know, we, we can um, afford to idly... Um, uh, speculate, and then we have to sort of come back to the the cold shower of reminding ourselves that um, you know we've won six knockout games at all since uh, since 1966. The only ones we have won have not exactly been against them um, top uh, superpowers. You know we have to go back 12 years to scraping through against Ecuador. So suddenly, you know, I, I mean, I can't wait till the Colombia game. I, I think it's in all sorts of ways, partly just because of you know, where it could lead us, but mostly just because I think it's such an exquisitely balanced game. I mean, you know, I'm sure we're all having the same discussions. Mates asking me, you know, how do you think it's going to go? And and the news that James Rodriguez could well be fit is just another another of the, the jitters um, if you're an England fan. I think I, I think it's just a, a, say, beautifully poised game. I think they're two teams that are capable of scoring goals, capable of conceding a few as well. 
Just to go over the remaining teams in England's half of the draw, with England, of course, there's Colombia, as you say, uh, Croatia, Russia, Sweden and Switzerland. That means, Matt, that one of those teams will be in the World Cup final. Most of those teams have never been to a World Cup final before, uh, the exceptions being England back in 1966 and Sweden before that in 1958. So we are going to see a very unfamiliar face as part of a World Cup final in a fortnight's time. We are, and I, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, yesterday was one of the, the great World Cup days. Those two games were just absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, say as good a double header in the World Cup as I can ever remember. Today certainly lacked the quality, but then had, you know, the penalty drama, um, in it. So I, I just think it, you know, in terms of just looking at that side of the draw, you know, you can say, oh, where's the quality? But I, you know, I just find myself looking at it thinking, <laughs> certainly as an Englishman, isn't it exciting? Isn't it enthralling? It sort of sums up a, a World Cup that has been unpredictable. You know, Spain have gone out, the, the strong team in that half, but actually, you know, when you end up sacking your manager on the eve of the tournament, can you be surprised if things don't go to plan? So, you know, it's hard to have um, much sympathy for them. And then you find yourself thinking if, you know, I know there was all that talk before the England-Belgium game, you know, who wants to win, the Belgium not want to win. You know, if I was a Belgium fan uh, looking at that side of the draw tonight, I'd be thinking, oh, um, maybe maybe I'm not so thrilled that Yenazai stuck that one in the top corner. Well, it is then Croatia who go through. Disappointment for Denmark. And it's only right, Bill, that I should point out their right back, Henrik Dalsgaard, didn't have too bad a tournament. And of course, that has nothing to do with the fact that he plays for my club, Brentford, and is our first contracted player to play in the World Cup. We're very happy, us Bees fans. Congratulations. The start of the week sees four more teams try and reach the quarterfinals. In Samara, old rivals Brazil and Mexico go head-to-head. Uh, Brazil got off to a slow start in Russia and are looking to still right the wrongs of four years ago when they were hammered by Germany in the semi-finals. bill. And with no Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, is this the chance for Neymar to light up the tournament? Uh, it is, just as Brazil's main rivals... Uh... Spain and Germany uh, arguably have fallen by the wayside while likewise Neymar, his main individual rivals, uh, Messi and Ronaldo are are out of the tournament so yes, he can certainly step up to the the plate Uh, Brazil have um, they've they've done reasonably well they had a slow start but they've done fine for the next two games, Mexico perhaps went uh, the other way they started like a house on fire um, uh, against Germany, winning that one, and they they finished with a rather flat three nil defeat to Sweden. So they'll have to refine that momentum uh, again for for this game. It'll be very hard for them. I mean, remarkably, Mexico through to the last sixteen for a sixth consecutive World Cup. Um, can they cause Brazil any problems? Do you think? Um, I mean, they have great pace. I mean, Javier Hernandez is uh, is looking really good. I mean, it, he's not really produced this form for. West Ham, I think. I mean, he'll he's got a real spring in his step, and he's uh, you know an extra yard of pace. I mean, he could certainly uh, cause a problem or two. I mean, Mexico must their fans must be uh, looking at the the fixture in despair. They're thinking this is this is going to be seven times in a row we're going to fall at this stage. They are really the arsenal of the international game. You know, <laughs> uh, and falling at the last sixteen of the Champions League year after year and. Uh, Good luck to them, but I fear this could be the end of the road again. And that one is available on ITV. Uh, The evening game is Belgium versus Japan, and you can see that one on the BBC.
Group G winners Belgium boast a talented squad, as we all know. So is it time for them to live up to the expectations, Bill, and, and progress further in this tournament? Yeah, I think so. They, the four round of 16 matches we've had so far have been reasonably close. Two have gone to penalties, two was, were decided by one goal. But now um, that does have the look of being a bit lopsided, Belgium-Japan. Um, Japan squeezed through on the smallest possible margin of uh, fair play, <laughs> uh, unless you count lots as an even smaller margin. And Belgium have looked very good. They were top scorers, I think, in Europe in the qualifying campaign. They scored 43 goals in 10 games. Now they've got uh, another nine goals in the group stage at the World Cup. So they're they're free pre-scoring team. Uh, I think Hazard has played well. Um, and Mertens as well, that they've clicked very nicely. There's a should be a nice uh, match for them. Japan only won one game in the group stage and their manager admitted in their final match against Poland, in which they were losing, that they uh, were going to stick rather than twist. That is that they stopped attacking and then gambled on Senegal, not eliminating them by scoring an equaliser against Colombia. Uh, does that frank admission sort of surprise you? Yes, it was a, a huge risk, really, but... Uh, Perhaps it's a recognition that his his team's not particularly strong. Uh, it, it was a big surprise that he made six changes. I think mm. to that in that last game, when uh, obviously in the case of England or Belgium, that's understandable to to rest their players when it doesn't really matter. But I mean, this was a a, a, a crucial game. Mm. They could have easily got knocked out, and there didn't seem to be any particular reason why they should make such changes. Uh, there weren't a rash of injuries or anything, but. Um, uh, he he took a chance. I guess some of the other some of the players who played in the first two games will will come back for this one. Yeah, I think we're all scratching our heads a little bit about all the decisions that were made then. But they are looking to create history uh, by reaching the quarterfinals for the first time. But I'm guessing this is a Belgium win all the way. Yeah, I think this probably looks the the most most one-sided on paper of the round of 16 matchups so I suppose you have to go for Belgium but the way this World Cup has gone who knows (laughs) you're right there Uh, that is it for now many thanks to my guests today Bill Edgar Jonathan Northcroft and Matt Dickinson subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet for just a pound a week for your first eight weeks search The Times Digital for more information don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast supplier. And we'll be back on Monday in the company of Bill, Matt and Alison Rudd. See you then. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.